0: And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands On Apologetics. Yes, you have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today as we learn how to explain, defend the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. And talk about learning how to explain and defend the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. We got a great teacher coming on the show. We're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And that person is Sam Shamoon. Sam shamoon uh, if, if you're not familiar with him, you should be, because he's one of those movers and shakers in the area of apologetics on social media, specifically with uh, Christian-Muslim uh, apologetics, especially the Trinity, Deity of Christ, uh, those areas, also Jehovah Witnesses, when uh, this Pentecostalism, all sorts of stuff. Well, uh, Sam, as you know, is a, a Syrian Catholic, And uh, he is going to be coming on the show. And I tell you, uh, last time he was on the show, it was a clinic. I had my Logos computer program, my Bible program up and running, following along with his uh, (laughs) lessons and highlighting the text and so on. So uh, he did such a great job um, looking at uh, this uh, mysterious uh, angel of the covenant or messenger of the covenant in the Old Testament that uh, I asked them, come back and and please, you know, do another presentation. But uh, this time we're going to focus on the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So if any of you are talking to Jehovah Witnesses, maybe you're dialoguing with uh, Muslims or uh, someone who, you know, denies the personality of the Holy Spirit, the divinity of the Holy Spirit, This is the show for you, because Sam is just a master of apologetics. They'll be coming up on the other side of the break. This side of the break, we're going to do our Finding the Fallacy, which today is the Appeal to Moderation, and we're also going to meet an early church father. Today's early church father today um, isn't really a father as much as a document. It is known as the Didache, the Didache, so... Lots of great stuff in store for us. so I want to welcome all of you to the show, as I do every show, to the dojo. Um, I want to say hi to all of you watching live stream on Facebook, YouTube, all the other platforms we're out on. Also, um, I want to welcome all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcast around the world, either through our handy-dandy phone app or our flagship website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. By the way, jump on that website because there is an upcoming conference that you'll definitely want to attend uh, in Covina, California. So just go on virginmostpowerfulradio.org, check it out, get all the details, and um, also all the other distribution centers that we have. It's kind of funny, we have Sam on the show. This is totally divine providence because when I booked Sam for this show, this was a long time ago. Um, recently, there was a a, um, a Protestant Reformed um, conference, I believe it's all Reformed, in which they had presenters speaking on Roman Catholicism. And uh, one of those presenters did a presentation on the Protestant Old Testament canon, which, of course, as you know, William Albrecht and myself are... We run this uh, Apocrypha Apocalypse channel on YouTube, which we focus specifically on that question. And, uh, of course, there was other speakers, too, uh, which took uh, shots at, uh, you know, Catholicism's wrong terms of justification and so on. Well, anyway, uh, it, watching it, um, uh, Sam got in touch with William, said, hey, why don't you come on my channel, the Sam uh, Shamoon or no, excuse me, it's the Shamoonian channel. Um and uh do a presentation, show the problems with the old testament text, which we did, and then uh we, we figured we need a two parter at least because there's just so many errors in it. So Sam said come on Monday, which is today. And ironically we got Sam on our show and then we're William Albrecht and myself are going to be on the Shimunian channel uh later this evening and we're going to be diving into the old testament canon and the problems with uh this particular person's presentation defending the protestant canon so you want to check it out uh just uh go to that channel on youtube and uh and you know say hi to us all right uh, i think i covered everything if you uh, oh i should mention the email if you ever want to get a hold of me please do the best way to do that is through the dojo mailbox, which is uh, questions at hands on apologetics dot com questions at hands on dot com that comes directly to me. All right, enough of that. Let's go to our finding the fallacy. Today's finding the fallacy is the appeal to moderation. This is the um, uh, basically uh, the argument to moderation is known also as the false compromise argument or the argument from the middle ground or the golden mean uh, fallacy. It is a fallacy that the truth is supposedly between, uh, is always a compromise between two opposing positions. As an example uh, would be to regard two uh, opposed arguments. Let's say one person correctly says the sky is blue, another person says no, the sky is yellow. Uh, This particular fallacy would argue that the truth of the matter is probably somewhere in the middle so I guess the sky would be green. And of course, you could tell by the example, just the problem. With this particular fallacy, I think this fallacy stems from uh, the idea that truth is usually in the middle of two extremes. Generally speaking, that's that's a good rule of thumb. However, it's not true in every single case. And so therefore, um, the appeal to moderation tries to apply it apply it to every single case. So whenever you have two opposing camps, the appeal to moderation would, say, would try to make the uh, whatever the middle is as uh, the true thing. When, like I said, as a rule of thumb, that's probably true. You know, orthodoxy is usually the balance between extremes, but it's not true in every single case. And in fact, uh, you can come up with all sorts of absurd examples um, where if you try to find a middle case between two extremes. Um, It just won't make any sense. So that's our Finding the Fallacy for today, the Appeal to Moderation. All right, let's look at our early church father for today. Like I said, it's actually not a person. We don't know who wrote the Didache. Or maybe there were several authors. We have no idea whatsoever. But we do have this very ancient document coming from the Apostolic Fathers. And of course, the Apostolic Fathers are those fathers who... Were uh, lived during the time of uh, the apostles, and therefore within living memory of Christ. So, a very important um, document indeed. It was first published in eighteen eighty three, following its discovery by uh, uh, Phileo, uh, Philotheos uh, Brinios. Excuse me, I messed up the fr- first word. The Metropolitan of Nicomedia, and it's a uh, it, the discovery was eleventh century manuscript. Um, upon its publication, it is quickly observed that large parts of this work had previously been extant as quotations in other works, and that's kind of cool when we find things out like that. But it was not recognized for what they were, for example, almost all of the Greek text that the did okay was recoverable uh from already known seventh century book known as the apostolic constitutions originating in Syria in the fourth century. Since uh, Berenius' discovery of the complete text, numerous other finds have been made of fragmentary texts and translations of the Didache and a complete translation in Georgian. So we have fragments in Latin, Coptic, Ethiopic, Syriac, uh, all sorts of different languages, and a complete Greek text. Uh, the best scholarship on the Didache provides the following hypotheses that the part of the Didache Uh, From chapters 1 and 2 all the way through to 6 is originally a Jewish work from instruction of Gentile proselytes in Judaism. Um, And uh, let's see. um, uh, The Didache was written no later than 160, probably in Syria, perhaps as late as uh, or as early as 140. It's also known as the Two Ways document. And uh, from chapter seven onwards uh, is definitely Christian uh, production in which it's a work to instruct catechumens. So that's the background for the Didache. Now let's go to, uh, let's go a couple of quotes because there's lots of very cool quotes. Now, remember, this is extremely early on within living memory of Christ. Certainly even within the lifetime of the apostles or immediately after the lifetime of the apostles, so uh, you're, you're hearing the voice of the most ancient church. So I'll give you a couple selections. This is from Jurgens' Faith, Early Fathers. It says, confess your offenses to the church or in church and do not go up to your prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of life. In seven of the same work, it says, in regards to baptism, baptize thus. After the foregoing instructions, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in living water and if there's no living water then baptize in other water and if you're not able in cold then in warm and if you have neither pour water three times on the head in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit before the before baptism uh let the one who is baptizing the the one who is baptized fast and uh as also any others as are able Uh, command the one who baptized to fast beforehand for one or two days. In 14, it has this to say, and this is very interesting. On the Lord's day of the Lord, gather together, break bread, and give thanks after confessing your transgressions so that your sacrifice may be pure. So very interesting. First, that Mass is here being celebrated on the day of the Lord, which would be Sunday. And also notes the confession of transgression so that your sacrifice may be pure. So here, this very early document points to the Mass as being a sacrifice. And, man, there's so much more to go, but uh, I hear the music coming up, so we'll just park it right there. Uh, this is the Didache, the Meet the Early Church Father, for today. Coming up next, Sam Shamoon, Talk about the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit. If you want to listen, bye-bye. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. And uh, like I said, uh, apologetics is being able to explain, defend the faith. And uh, there are many different uh, areas. I mean, there's so many different aspects of the faith that's being attacked, including uh, Trinitarian Doctrine. So as Catholic apologists, we ought to know the Bible. We ought to know how to explain the Trinity to people who uh, would deny it. And to help us do that, we have our good friend Sam Shamoon with us. Sam, as you know, has an uh, enormously uh, popular and rightly so channel on YouTube called shamoonian S-H-A-M-O-U-N-I-A-N, which Sam dives into everything in apologetics, especially issues concerning the Trinity, deity of Christ, uh bible issues theology everything like that. And uh, Sam, welcome to Hands-on Apologetics.
1: Hey, good to be back with my favorite scholar on the biblical canon. May the Lord Jesus bless you and anoint you and fill you with the spirit. Bless your ministry and cause you to prosper. And I pray the Lord Jesus will bless me to speak clearly and accurately as we glorify the eternal spirit of the Father and Son in Jesus name. But you need to always give a disclaimer when you're recommending my youtube channel it 's not for the faint hearted so
0: yeah that's true that's right
1: because my my middle is, my middle Eastern nature sometimes gets the best of me, so we' just got to be careful
0: yeah, but you know you made a fantastic point on your channel, and I don't want to take away from our time on the topic but when you're dealing with uh Muslims, especially uh middle Eastern Muslims. That there is a kind of where they sense that if you're if you're being charitable, that they see that as a weakness. Yes, they do. And so you do have to be a lot more confrontative with them.
1: Oh, yeah. And interestingly, there is a tradition and I have no reason to belie that tradition that Santa Claus was at the Council of Nicaea, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, the original Santa Claus. And what did he do to Arius, uh, Gary? Have you heard that tradition?
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he punched him in the nose.
1: Oh, man after my heart.
0: I <laughs> love that brother, but
1: he's in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will enable us to be worthy of that blessed company who love Jesus Christ more than their life and serve them to the best of their ability because they're glorified and alive with their Lord. So, <clears throat> amen. Praise God for these faithful men of the church, custodians of the faith. Yes, yeah, so today we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit I assume. Last week was yes. about the angel of the Lord, right? Or a couple of weeks ago. I forget the exact time. Why is that important? Now, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the issue of the eternality of the Holy Spirit does not come into question unless you're dealing with Muslims. I know there are some fringe Hebrew-Israelite movements that actually think the Holy Spirit is an angel, but they they are very rare. As far as Islam is concerned, the Holy Spirit would be considered Gabriel. But when you're dealing with various, quote-unquote, Christian heretical groups, for the most part, they would take for granted that the Spirit is eternal, but they depersonalize him. So the focus on the Holy Spirit would have to be on his personhood. So by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to spend the majority of the time showing from Scripture that the Spirit is a person but again not a human person he's not a person like us he's not an angelic person he has characteristics of personhood in other words when I say the Spirit is a person I mean that he has awareness intellect will volition desires He's aware that he exists. He's aware that he's the spirit. He's aware that he's not the father. He's aware he's not the son. And he's aware that he's one with them in the divine essence. So in that sense, but not a physical composite being like you and I who's bound to time and space. That's not how we define the term person when we use it in reference to the blessed and glorious triune Godhead. So does the Bible present ample evidence that the Holy Spirit is a divine person not simply God's active force like Jehovah's Witnesses would teach but a person who's one with the Father and the Son absolutely so by the grace of Lord Jesus Christ let's delve into the evidence because I know time is fleeting I'm going to use a few examples from the Hebrew Bible and then we're going to segue into the New Testament one of my favorites is 2nd Samuel 23 verses 1 to 3 2nd Samuel 23 verses 1 to 3 because this shows that even the Old Testament saints the prophets were aware that it was the Holy Spirit who was inspiring them to speak the oracles of God and record those oracles for perpetuity and that it was the Holy Spirit that enabled them to have visions and dreams of God and to hear God audibly or see him in a visible fashion for example here's what David says now these are the last words of David thus says David the son of Jesse thus says the man raised up on high the anointed of the God of Jacob and by the way interestingly that word anointed is the word where we get Messiah the Mashiach the Messiah of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel now here notice David's awareness of the personhood and the deity of the Holy Spirit a thousand years before our Lord became flesh from the virgin the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. So I want your audience to listen carefully to what David just said. It's the spirit who's speaking by me. The spirit uses my mouth to speak. He's speaking using my mouth and it's his word that's on my tongue. So David clearly is aware. The Holy Spirit inspires him to say the things that God wants him to say and to record them as part of the canon. And then he says something interesting. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. So now I'm a little baffled. He says, it's the spirit of the Lord that speaks by me. But then he says, it's the God of Israel, the rock of Israel that's speaking. Because for David, though the spirit belongs to the Lord, he is the God who speaks and inspires. This is a thousand years before the Lord, <clears throat> son of God, Jesus Christ was conceived and born from the blessed virgin. David is already aware of the role the Spirit plays in inspiring the prophets. And that's in the Creed, is it not? Where it says the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and who together with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. And here, David says, it's the Spirit speaking through me. So that's one. Another one, Isaiah 63, verses 10 to 11. Isaiah 63, verses 10 to 11. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Now, last time I checked Gary, you. It does not make sense to speak of grieving electricity or water, right, or rebelling against electricity. But here it says, they, the Israelites, rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, a distinction, Yahuwah or Yahweh and his Holy Spirit. So they're two, but they're still inseparable. And the Spirit can be grieved because the Spirit has emotions. So he turned against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? So Isaiah, over 700 years before the birth of our Lord, is aware of the role of the Holy Spirit in bringing Israel out of Egypt and preserving them in the desert and subsequently giving them rest in the land. That's what Isaiah sixty three fourteen says. And Isaiah sixty three fourteen, as a beast goes down into the valley, and the spirit of the lord causes him to rest so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name so isaiah is aware the spirit has emotions because he's a person and he has all the omni attributes of god because the spirit is the one who preserved the israelites sustained the israelites saved the israelites and brought them into the promised land in union with <clears throat> yahuwah or we'd say the father and the son in new testament language so no- notice how much These Old Testament prophets knew about the identity of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's go to the New Testament. Acts five, verses three to four. What does Peter tell us about the Holy Spirit's personhood? Is he a person or simply Jehovah's active force like Joe's witnesses teach people? Acts five, verses three to four. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Well, again, it doesn't make sense to speak about lying to water or electricity because once once someone starts speaking that way then the first thing we do is we call Bellevue right lie to the Holy Spirit well if you can lie to the Holy Spirit that means the Holy Spirit is a person and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself while it remain was it not your own and after it was sold was it not in your own control and here's the key why have you conceived this thing in your heart you have not lied to men but to God so now notice And Ananias lied to the apostles. Well, they're persons, so they can be lied to. But in lying to them, they are lying to God, whom the apostles represented. Well, here God would be God the Father, and God the Father is a divine person. But it says that he also lied to the Spirit. So if the Father is a person, albeit a divine person, and the apostles whom he lied to are persons, albeit human persons, then that means the Holy Spirit must also be a person if he can be lied to. So you can't get around this, Joe's Witnesses. And again, in the same chapter, Acts 5, verse 9, then Peter said, this, this time he's talking to Sapphira and Ananias' wife, Acts 5, verse 9, then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Well, again, the word test is also the word that can be rendered as "tempt." Just like Jehovah Yahweh was tempted, according to Deuteronomy six sixteen. Numbers 14 22 in fact numbers 14 22 he says to the Israelites you have tempted me these ten times just like Jesus was tempted in the wilderness so too can the Spirit of the Lord be tempted now I need to qualify that when I say tempted that doesn't mean there's anything within God any proclivity within God that would cause him to be susceptible to those temptations because temptations can come from external factors or internal desires God is immutably pure and holy. There's nothing within God that would make him susceptible to temptation. Yet others, external to God, try to tempt him all day, all night. But what's the point? Just like Yahweh being tempted means he's a person, Jesus Christ being tempted means he's a person, well, for the spirit to be tempted or tested, he too must be a person. Can't get around this. Same chapter of Acts, Acts 5.32. Acts 5.32. And we are his witnesses. Well, last time I checked, you need to be a person in order to be able to testify and bear witness to something or someone. We are his witnesses, we are the witnesses, we are bearing witness of Jesus. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So just like the apostles are persons who are able to bear witness and testify, The spirit also must be a person if he can bear witness and testify, albeit he's not a human person. And this fulfills the promise of our Lord or the words of our Lord when in John 15, 26 to 27, he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will bear witness of me and you also will bear witness of me because you've been with me from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit and the apostles bear witness of Christ. Well, the apostles are persons who are able to bear witness which means that if the spirit can also bear witness, he must be a person, albeit a divine person. Now in Acts 15, 20 to 29, Acts 15, 20 to 29, when the council of Jerusalem decided the issue, should Gentiles observe the law of Moses? Should Gentiles observe circumcision? Should Gentiles keep kashrut dietary laws? Here's their decision. Now notice who decided and through whom Acts 15 20 29 for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit it seemed good to the Holy Spirit that's discernment that means the Holy Spirit has discernment he can discern he knows whether this is good for you or that's better or this is not so the fact that the spirit can discern what's good for you means that he has awareness intellect volition <clears throat> and will. And to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. So the Spirit and the elders all discern.
0: Very good. We're chatting with Sam Shamoon. More to come right after this. Stay tuned.
1: This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
0: And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Sam Shamoon of Shamoonian channel on YouTube, and he's given a clinic on the Holy Spirit. And uh, Sam, great stuff. I got my logos fired up. I'm highlighting text. I hope everybody is listening is also highlighting their Bibles. So I'll just let you go because I know you got a lot of content.
1: Yeah. And I apologize that I'm speeding up somewhat because I know time is fleeting and I'm trying to do justice to the topic. So Let's look at some passages where now I'm gonna kill two birds with one stone. Not only is the Holy Spirit a person, because he can speak, but he is God who speaks, which I already illustrated from 2 Samuel 23, verses one to three. But here goes a few more. Acts 28, 25 to 27. Here, in Acts 28, 25 to 27, Paul is disputing with the Jews, and he cites Isaiah six, verses nine to 10. Now, why is this important? If you read Isaiah 6 in context, which we don't have time to do, Isaiah sees Yahweh in a visible shape, in a visible form, wearing a visible robe, seated on a visible throne. And then he says in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, I'm undone, right? Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes, my own physical eyeballs, have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. So clearly he's seeing Yahweh. And then Yahweh commissions them with the words of Isaiah 6 9 to 10 but now notice who that Yahweh happened to be according to Paul the Blessed Apostle Acts 28 25 to 27 so when they did not agree among themselves they departed after Paul had said one word the Holy Spirit spoke so here again the Holy Spirit is a person who speaks spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our father saying so notice the Holy Spirit said through Isaiah commissioned Isaiah to say these things so Isaiah was communicating the words of the Holy Spirit through human language go to this people and say hearing you will hear and shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive for the hearts of this people have grown dull their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Astonishingly, Paul takes the words of Yahweh and attributes them to the Holy Spirit. In other words, for Paul, the Yahweh that spoke these words was none other than the Holy Spirit because he is Yahweh, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Clear as day, it's right there. We're not making it up. Another one in Hebrews 10 15 17. And there it's referring to the fulfillment of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34 if you read the context there god talks about making a new covenant where he'll write the law in the hearts of his people and they will all know him and he will remove their lawless deeds it's yahweh speaking there folks read it it's not a creature it's yahweh but now notice what hebrews does with jeremiah 31 verses 33 to 34 but the holy spirit and this is again in hebrews 10 15 to 17 hebrews 10 15 to 17. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said who the Holy Spirit said before this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days says the Lord oh wow so the Holy Spirit is the Lord who makes the covenant with his people I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them and who's saying that the Holy Spirit now notice verse 17 then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Astonishingly, Hebrews has the Holy Spirit speaking as Yahweh and has the Holy Spirit saying, I will not remember their sins. In other words, the Holy Spirit forgives sins like the Father and the Son do because he's one God with them. Clear as day, Hebrews ten fifteen and 17. Now, with that said, do we have indication that the Holy Spirit possesses the essential attributes of God, such as omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, well, here you go. Psalm 139, 7 to 12, and I'll just read verse seven because it's talking about God's omnipresence. Wherever you go, he's there, you can't escape him. But in Psalm 139, verse seven, notice who you cannot escape from because wherever you are, he's already there, ever present. Where can I go from your spirit? So there's a distinction again, your and the spirit that belongs to Yahweh, spirit. Answer, nowhere. Where can I flee from your presence? Nowhere, because wherever you are, the spirit is there and God's presence is there. So he's omnipresent. Well is the omniscient? Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14. Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Yahweh. Or as his counselor has taught him, who can guide, instruct, and teach the spirit of the Lord? Nobody. With whom did he, the spirit of the Lord, take counsel? And who instructed him? No one instructs the spirit and the spirit needs no one to counsel him because he is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent and taught him the spirit, the path of justice, who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is omniscient, um, omnipotent and omnipresent. Well, is he the creator? Well, here you go. Job 33 verse four. Is the Holy Spirit the creator of God? Job 33 verse four. The spirit of God has made me Who made me? The Spirit of God has made me. And the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Now again, God is not a physical being, that he has physical breath and he physically breathes. So it's a metaphor. The Spirit here is likened to God's breath, because when you think breath, you think life. Because if you can't breathe, you can't live. So the Spirit is the breath of God, in that when God wants to animate and give life to creation, he sends the Spirit, and the Spirit is the one who gives us our life and our breath because he's the life giver, he's the creator and sustainer. The spirit of God has made me. What about Psalm 104, 29 to 30? Psalm 104, 29 to 30. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath. Now, if you look at the Hebrew, it's actually ruach. You take away their spirit. They die and return to their dust. So when my spirit leaves my body, my body returns to dust. Now, when God wants to resurrect me or recreate me or replenish the ground, what does he do? Verse 30 of Psalm 104, you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. So when God wants to resurrect the dead, recreate the dead, and replenish the ground, he sends the spirit, and the spirit makes the dead alive again. This is why in Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2, we see the spirit is already there, actively involved in animating the earth. Here we go. In the beginning Genesis 1 verses 1 to 2 God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the meaning the earth at this stage was uninhabitable it was at a point where life could not be sustained so when God wanted to make the earth habitable <clears throat> life permitting what did he do and the Spirit of God was hover hovering over the face of the waters there's the key When God wanted to take the earth in its prebiotic state and make it alive so that it could be light permitting, the spirit hovered the gaseous state of the earth and made the earth a place teeming with life, proving that the spirit is creator and life giver and proving that the spirit is pre-temporal because he's already there with God before the creation. So you can prove contextually that when God says, let us make man in our image, one of the persons that he's definitely speaking with, and just using Genesis and Job to prove it, is the Spirit, because Job 33, 4 said, the Spirit of God has made me. Genesis 1, God is speaking to someone saying, let us make man in our image. Clearly, God and the Spirit were there before creation, and God in union with the Spirit created all things and gave light to the earth and made man after the image of God. So there you go, Gary, in a nutshell. I don't know how much time we have, but I just wanted to stop and give you a moment to reflect. Yeah. For comment.
0: No, great stuff. Um, yeah, we, we have, still have a couple of minutes before the break. Um, okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, tying all this thing, you have divine attributes given to the Holy Spirit. You have the spirit as the giver of life. Uh, and, of course, all these things are appropriate only to God. So, I mean, I don't know how many different ways you could show that the the Holy Spirit is God, and that uh, God is a person, not an impersonal force.
1: Amen. And and since if we have a few minutes, let me show again the works of the Holy Spirit, First Corinthians twelve seven to eleven. And then I don't know if we have another segment. I'll show where the Holy Spirit is worship, because a lot of yeah, people got say,
0: one more segment after that.
1: Oh, glory to God! I'm I'm rushing, thinking my time is up. All right, good. I can breathe out. All right, First Corinthians twelve seven to eleven. The gifts that every member of the body of Christ receive, who gives it to them? First Corinthians twelve seven to 11 But the manifestation of the Spirit, the sign, the visible proof that the Spirit is working in and through you, is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gift of healings by the same Spirit. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, for the Spirit to be able to enable a person to speak different languages, or to interpret them, or to be wise and knowledgeable, the Spirit must be all-powerful, all-knowing, because he must know all languages perfectly, and he must be... he has to have the ability to enable you to understand those language interpret them and he must be all-powerful to enable you to do miracles such as raising the dead and all of these works are the same spirit and here's the key verse 11 but one and the same spirit verse 11 one and the same spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually as he wills so the Holy Spirit has a will he decides he has volition and this word will is also used by the Son in Luke 10, in reference to himself when he says, all things have been handed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So just like the Son wills, discerns, decides, and chooses, same word used of the Spirit, because the Spirit is an omnipotent, omniscient, <clears throat> omnipresent Divine person, because he's truly God, one with the Father and the Son.
0: There you go. Yeah. So, uh, so he has volition. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Only
1: persons have volitions.
0: Right. And, And, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Well, we're only got maybe 30 seconds left. So, yeah, we have a whole segment. And by the way, I hope everybody has their Bibles, their highlighters out and you're getting this down if you. By the way, uh we've gone through a lot of information very quick. Uh this program will eventually be up on Rumble and other media as well. So, just go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org. You can listen to this again. And again, you know, just take in all this great teaching that Sam's given us and uh and if you, you like what you hear definitely check out his uh, youtube channel uh it, it, and uh yeah and embrace yourself because you're gonna get some great wisdom and it, sam doesn't put up with tom foolery either so uh which which is actually it's great because you get to see a master at work when he's dealing with uh, opponents that really aren't uh always honest so i hear the music coming up we'll be right back right after this Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. And we are uh, undergoing a lesson on the Holy Spirit. Great stuff from Sam Shimun of Shemoonian on YouTube. So check it out. If you like it, hit like, subscribe, support Sam. Because he's doing great work in many different areas in apologetics, and uh, like I say, I hope everybody has their Bible and highlighters out to to get the great teaching. So, Sam, I'll just let you uh, finish however you want, and then uh, you know we could chat after maybe answering a possible objections or something like that.
1: Oh yes, yes, yes. I mean, my pleasure. There's objections that they bring up that are easily refuted, but what I want to share with everyone is the essential unity of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit in a passage that many people may not be aware is a reference to the Holy Spirit, and then we'll show where the Spirit is worshiped and prayed to, because that's the question. Do we pray to the Holy Spirit? Of course we do. We know that in our tradition, but does the Bible confirm that? Yes, it does. But let me go over Revelation 22 verses one to three, and I want everyone listening, pay careful attention to the symbolism, because Revelation is rich with symbolism that must be deciphered correctly. And if you understand this symbol, you'll see the Holy Spirit flowing from the Father and the Son because he's one with them in essence. And he showed me, Revelation 22, verses 1 to 3, a pure river of water of life. That's the key, river of water of life. Clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, notice it's one throne, but there are two occupants. Throne, not thrones, of God and of the Lamb. One throne that belongs to God and the Lamb, showing... That they have equal authority. They're equally sovereign. Both Father and Son are the sovereign Lord God, King of creation. But from that one throne comes the pure river of water of life. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, and which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne singular of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. Now, God and the Lamb we get Father and Son, one throne, because they have one authority, one kingdom. They're equally sovereign. The Father's sovereignty is the Son's sovereignty. The Son shares in his father's rulership. Where is the Holy Spirit? The river of water of life. How do I know that this is the Holy Spirit? Because John, we believe, wrote Revelation and the Gospel of John, tells us in John 7. 38 to 39 John 7 38 to 39 he who believes in me as the scripture said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water right the river of water of life rivers of living water but this he spoke concerning the spirit so guys there you go the spirit is the rivers of living water the pure river of water of life whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified so in symbolic imagery John sees the Father and the Son on the throne and the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and Son to animate renew sustain and preserve the new heavens and the new earth much like the Spirit did for the original heavens and earth because if you remember in Genesis 1 verse 1 and 2 who was hovering over the watery deep the holy spirit so from the very beginning you'll find a pattern where the holy spirit is linked with water and water is linked with the spirit and water symbolizes the spirit from genesis 1 verse 2 onwards like you must be born of water and spirit and so on and so forth so there's the trinity folks revelation 22 verses 1-3 to all of them together working in perfect inseparable unity to bring about the new heavens and the new earth now Where do we find the Holy Spirit being prayed to? 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. And Gary, stop me anytime you want with consideration of the time. And if you have any interjections, let me know. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Let me just read this benediction. This is a benediction, folks. This is a prayer from Paul where he's invoking God to bestow his spiritual blessings and riches on believers now notice it's a trinitarian benediction because notice how it begins the grace of the lord jesus christ and the love of god and the communion of the holy spirit be with you all amen there you have a trinitarian prayer an invocation a benediction where paul is invoking the lord jesus god the father the holy spirit to bestow these gifts these blessings spiritual favors upon the church. So may the Lord Jesus favor you and grant you to be favorable towards one another. May God the Father fill you with his love, to love one another, and to love the Lord God the way the Lord God loves you, and may the Holy Spirit produce fellowship among yourselves and with God. That's a Trinitarian benediction. Now, if before I move on, I just wanna be sensitive to time because there's another prayer to the Holy Spirit, but this requires a few minutes of me Unpacking the symbolism now. How are we doing on time here?
0: Yeah, you got plenty of time. Go ahead.
1: Oh, okay That's magic to my ears (laughs) Many people are not aware that Revelation 1 4 to 6 Revelation 1 4 to 6 is a Trinitarian invocation So let's read it to see Where do I get this notion that this is an invocation to the triune God to bless the readers or the hearers of? this book John to the seven churches which are in Asia Revelation 1 4 to 6 grace to you favor be yours and peace see this is a prayer and if you read Paul's letters as well as the letters of John they often begin with an invocation that God will bless the readers or hearers of their letters similarly here John is doing it In Revelation grace to you and peace from him who, who is and who was and who's to come now many people think this is referring to Jesus Christ no this is referring to God the Father as the context shows so who is the one who is and was who is to come God the Father and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ so there's Jesus Christ and the words from 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 show they're not the same person so who is who was who is to come is distinct from the seven spirits that are before stone who are distinct from jesus christ the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his god and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen so he ends it even with a doxology an ascription of praise to jesus christ showing that jesus is god because he only offer doxologies to god not to a creature now seven spirits is that referring to angels no seven spirits is referring to the Holy Spirit and his perfection now how do I know that because John will use the number seven often as a symbolism for perfection where do I get this from well in Genesis 2 verses 1 to 3 it says when God created the heavens and the earth in six days after he finished with creation of mankind he saw that it was very good and then he rested on the seventh day because his work was complete. Genesis two verses one to three. This is why throughout church history, many Christians derived their belief that the number seven is symbolic of perfection, completion, because of Genesis two, because God completed heavens and earth and rested, so seven became the number for completion, perfection. Creation's complete, it's perfect, lacks nothing. This is further confirmed in Revelation 15 verse one. In Revelation 15 verse one, notice what it says, Revelation 15 verse one, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels, see when John wants you to know they're angels, he says angels, having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So notice the connection, it only takes seven last plagues to complete God's judgment. Seven equals completion if it's complete. It's perfect. It lacks nothing So then why is the Holy Spirit called seven spirits? Well, Revelation 5 verse 6 I'll tie it in with Jesus Revelation 5 verse 6 and I look and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders Stood a lamb and by the way, if you look at the Greek word, it means a young lamb So Jesus is appearing as a young male lamb that had been slain throat slit Why young male lamb? Because he's appearing as our Passover lamb. If you go to Exodus 12, the Israelites were to slaughter a one-year-old male lamb. So Jesus is appearing as our Passover lamb of a new Exodus. As though it had been slain, having seven horns, why seven horns? Revelation 17, 12, John tells us a horn represents a king with a kingdom with sovereign power. So why does the lamb have seven horns? To denote that he is the almighty king. He has a kingdom that's indestructible because he's all sovereign, almighty. Seven, complete, perfect, horn, power, sovereignty, authority. The perfect, almighty king, seven eyes. Well, what do you do with your eyes? You see, why seven eyes? Because he sees everything perfectly. But now notice who the seven eyes are, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Again, showing Jesus and the spirit working in perfect union with one another, that Jesus is present everywhere, in union with the spirit. So the seven spirits refers to the spirit in all his perfection, that his works are complete, his works are perfect, because he is perfect. Like Jesus having seven eyes means he sees all things perfectly, because he's omniscient, and seven horns, because he is a king that's almighty, whose kingdom is indestructible. There's your Trinity, Gary. There you go.
0: There you go. So we have two minutes left. Uh, yeah, fantastic. And the, the, uh, the use of sevens often is confusing, but if you look at the background, it makes perfect sense.
1: Yep. Now if, with that said, so with the last two minutes, then I just want to show the inseparable unity of the Godhead because they work inseparably in John sixteen twelve to 13. Our Lord says something that he also says about himself. He says, John sixteen twelve to 13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he the spirit of truth has come he will guide you to all the truth for he will not speak So notice he speaks again on his own authority, but whatever he hears so he can hear that means he's a person <clears throat> Whatever he hears he will speak and he will tell you things to come So what we gather here is the spirit never works Independently from the father and the son but only in perfect union with the father and the son because they're one God being one God they only and always work in perfect union And then we wrap it up with Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Now, many people don't understand why this is significant. This is a religious rite, a ritual, a practice done in honor of the deity that the person is submitting to. In other words, rituals, cult practices, are only done for a deity, the act of baptism is that ritual where the person who's being baptized is coming under the rule, the authority, the sovereign headship of the deity that he's performing the act for. So when you get baptized in the name of the Father, and the Holy Spirit, what you're acknowledging is that you are now submitting to the authority of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit, acknowledging all three as the God who owns you, possesses you and has the right to tell you how to live your life. Again, showing that these three persons are the one God.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, Sam, hey, thank you so much for coming on the program. And I'll see you later tonight on your channel.
1: Amen. Bless you.
0: All right. Sam Samoon, ladies and gentlemen, check out the channel. And, uh, man, great teaching, great stuff. My Bible program is overloaded with highlights. So I hope you enjoy the show. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the uh, Terry and Jesse Show. So uh, hang on for that, and God willing, we'll be back tomorrow to do this thing we call hands-on apologetics. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.